Welcome to another episode of Culinary School Stories, the weekly podcast that is dedicated to sharing the stories of people around the globe whose lives have been influenced, impacted, touched, and or enriched, for good or for bad, from their culinary school experience. Hi, my name is Colin Roach and I'm your host. Thanks for joining us today. You are an important part of this show where we ask the question, what's your culinary school story? So now, without any further delay, let's meet today's guest. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening in today to another episode of the Culinary School Stories podcast, a proud member of the Food Media Network. My guest today is Alex Rubinek. And Alex, I want to start right out by saying welcome and thank you for joining us today and sharing your culinary school story. Well, thanks, Chef, for having me. First and foremost, I really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Great. I haven't seen you in a long time. I know we have a lot to talk about, but let's start right at the beginning. Where did you get your love of food and cooking? Where did that start? And when did you realize you wanted to go to culinary school? Uh, I think my love of cooking probably started, you know, when I was in the single digits. I, I remember making fudge with my grandmother. There's a great picture of me doing that in like fourth grade. I used to bake cookies all the time with my aunts for my grandparents and cousins with uh, during the Christmas season, uh, sent them out in little tins. So I think there's always been something about being in the kitchen or around food that's really been a big draw to me. Uh, and I kind of had the uh, aha moment when I was actually uh, kind of taking a sabbatical from RTC when I went, moved down to Florida for a year to continue my education. Um, and I was like, I, I just got to do this. This is the thing that's pulling me. Awesome. And why did you pick the school that you went to? Was it just because you were in that area? Did you do any research? How many schools did you look at first? Um, Johnson and Wales was not my first pick. Uh, I was really, you know, this is 2008 when I'm in heavy consideration. Uh, I knew about Culinary Institute of America more like I've heard of it. Um, I was looking at a local community college and Wheaton, uh, called College of DuPage. I was looking at Robert Morris College, downtown Chicago, La Corte Blue, downtown Chicago. Uh, but I was working at this place called uh, Papa Do's Seafood Restaurant as a server. I figured if this is something I'm even moderately interested in being a cook, I probably should be aware if I can handle any facet of the industry whatsoever. Uh, so I really started in the front of house. Um, not very good, but had to find a way to get better really quick. Uh, and really found I loved the ebb and the flow of the industry, loved the characters, loved the people, loved the excitement. All of those butterflies are still there. Um, but there was a corporate chef that worked, just talked about Johnson and Wales. He, was like, he graduated out of Providence, I think in like 82. And uh, I took a chance and I sent my application in. And a couple months later, I got accepted and I was like elated. I was like getting into an Ivy League school kind of because uh, honestly, Johnson Wales tends to be up there and what they were looking for. But uh, for me, I picked that specific um, group, that university, because in that time they were really leading the way in the academic side of that degree program. It wasn't just a certificate. And that was kind of the big transition, I think, in the earlier 2000s of getting from the certificate into an actual accredited sort of um, the academic setting where you have not just some associates, but that potential to really go for a bachelor's degree. And from there you can go somewhere else. And I like that. I like that structure. Uh, I like that. It wasn't just about after a cutting board. It was about knowing how much the cutting board costs and why that knife's important and know where you're getting your product from, how much all that costs. And that really struck a real chord with me. Great. And why did you specifically pick the, Miami campus because there was Providence there was I guess Charleston or Norfolk or Denver yeah Norfolk I, I wasn't I think they had closed Norfolk by the time I was looking um I thought about Providence that was kind of a cool idea but I mean I was my early 20s I was 22 21 20 in that area when I was thinking about it and I mean why wouldn't you want to go to school in Miami it's warm <laughs> I had already spent some time in Florida and I kind of figured I, I didn't mind the warm weather and I was getting a little tired of the Chicago snow. And I, I know I live here now and the, the irony is not lost on me at all, but um, <laughs> I, what I will say 
the unknown positive out of going to North Miami was just the level of inclusion and how much diversity we had on our campus, I think made a lasting, lasting impact on my ability to work well within the field and the industry, as well as just have great lasting connections across the globe. Yeah, it is one of the most diverse campus out of them all, so great there. So what was going through your mind when you first went there? Did you tour it first, or did you just show up on day one and that was ready? Move in and let's get going. Yeah, Chef, I just showed up. Like, I showed up on moving day. It was a Saturday. I was a couple days ahead to get into the dorm because I was coming from so far away, and I had no idea what was going on. It's the first time I'd ever been really south of Tallahassee on any lat on any <laughs> on any latitude whatsoever longitude it was crazy i i just remember driving down like am i absolutely bonks if for just not seeing the campus not touring the campus not really having too many connections down there just showing up with my bags and be like this is it we got to make this work um it, it, it was bonkers but i mean again it's the community down there couldn't have been better the the support from all of the staff and the colleagues were just it, it made you feel comfortable and at ease. And that- those are the type of things you do when you're young, right? You're just impulsive and you just say, we're going to do this. It'll it'll work out. Yeah, you, you just you're like, what's the worst that could happen? I mean, and the funny thing is you don't know how bad it could get. You're, just, you're looking at a very small tunnel of potential success and you're like, that's all I need. I just need a little glimpse of light. It's going to be, everything's going to be just fine. Yeah, you're, it's exactly that kind of story. So what was your first impression? Now, when you hadn't seen it before, you pull up, you show up, you park the car you jump out what what's going through your head it was warm it was muggy it was exactly what i expected to be out of florida um it was great i loved it i i remember like the thickness in the air i remember the smell of the, the trees and the, the water because there's that little creek we had running on the back of our campus and uh just struck at the the building i kind of remember really looking at the labs it was like a it's like a, the entrance to a movie you're just like in awe you're like i don't you know, I hadn't really cooked professionally or at all when I'd gotten on campus. It's really, and I know we'll touch on it, but really my first time putting any product into a pan was uh, with Chef Wayne Bryant and nutrition. And I was horrible. I was really, really bad. Like really, really not good at that. And I couldn't make a crepe to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, I guess we'll say you weren't prepared then. So what what would you have, now that you're looking back, what would you wish you had known or what you had done before you went there that would have helped you maybe make that path a little bit clearer, a little bit easier for you? I don't think I would have changed how I approached the school. I don't think I would have changed my mindset. I think there could have been some guidance, you know, my second or third year and just understanding the industry and more, I think, probably when I got out of school, I think is where there could have been a little bit more, Hey, maybe think about this, maybe think about that. But I think everyone who enters that classroom really, it needs to be for them. They need to decide that this is what they want for them in culinary school. It, you can't really appease anyone else really because it's, you're gonna, you, you're submitting yourself to the industry, to everything about the industry. And you, you need to make sure you're okay with that decision. That's really the reason I decided to be a server for the first couple of years. Cause I wanted to see if I liked any of it, all of it. I'm like, all right, here we go. So I was, I was already committed at that time. So it was just, you know, kind of like going to high school or vocational school. It's like, this is the thing you need to be good at, create the structure, follow the programs, ask questions when they're take detailed notes. It's all really the same principle. It's just, instead of like taking ACT tests or any of those, it's practical. You need to be really good with your hands. You need to listen really well. You need to be detailed. You need to be a really good follower, a really, really good follower. Um, and even when think you're leading, you probably need to keep asking questions. So, I mean, I wouldn't change anything about my first two, three years at all on campus. So tell us about that first lab. What's going through your mind? You get your uniform, you get your, they give you the knife kit. Well, they don't give it to you. It's actually part of your tuition. So you get all this stuff and you're supposed to figure it out and you show up on day one. What's happening? What are the, what are the students that are, you're sharing the class with? What are they like? What is, was the chef welcoming to you? Was it made to be scary? Talk about that, would you? Um, my first class was beverage. I had a great instructor, uh, Chef John Houghton, on campus was amazing. 
Uh, but like I was giddy, but I was also like jealous. I, I was wearing, you know, basically a front of house, the front of house uniform we got, but I kept staring at my knife kit and I couldn't use it for basically the first three weeks. It was like driving me crazy. I just wanted to use my knives and I couldn't do any of that. I, I wanted to put my apron on. I wanted to like get in the kitchen. Like I wanted to do the things. And it was like learn about beverage. And funny enough, that sparked my real love and interest for the beverage world, which is nothing I particularly lost. It's, Part of it, it's actually my concentration for my bachelor's, and uh, it was exciting. But I remember getting into my first lab um, and just being in awe of having no idea what I was doing. Like everything looked different. Right? It was like the first time I'd really been in a professional kitchen. The first time I'd been really in front of a professional range. There's a real oven. There's things were just you know a little bit more sanitary. I guess you know it's not your home kitchen where it's cozy, um, and even the home kitchens you know really have evolves over time for their function but the professional kitchen really is relatively kind of the same for the past 50 60 years and i was just like really flabbergasted i didn't i was really kind of befuddled for the first couple of days and i really just settled into getting in there i mean chef wayne Bryan is obviously an amazing chef and sorely missed within our community but it, those lessons were pivotal i just remember having no idea like i, I was like lost but like lost in excitement was everybody in the class lost as well, or were you feeling like you were uh, different? No, I could tell some people were immediately comfortable. I was with some classmates who had already been professionally cooking. Uh, their family owns a restaurant, or they've been doing this, or they've been from pro starts. There was like these courses from high school I didn't even know was an option in my world. Um, and that's because I had a completely different focus in high school in my earlier in college. Um, but like when I got here, I, I really felt like the, the newest greenhorn possible. And I honestly think there was a bit of an advantage there uh, because that deficit of knowledge and that education gap could only be overcome through just consistently trying to catch up to everybody. So you don't, sure. you don't let off the gas, not just for the first class, but all the way to four years. And there just came a point where I, the only way I could get better was I had to work harder. So it's that work ethic. It really drove me into the Alex. You got to study harder. Like you really need to understand the differences between this sauce and that sauce, or what a Maillard reaction is, or why and why you can't have a Maillard reaction when you toast bread, and just these little details that will matter down the road. It's, uh, I really pushed myself really hard to get to a point where I, I felt somewhat competent by my second year, and even then, I was like, I think I can scramble some eggs. I passed La Costra. <laughs> So if someone's listening right now and they're thinking about going to culinary school and they're like, I got no experience. I, I don't know if I should do this. What you're saying is that's okay. It could be an advantage. It, it can be. It really can be. It, it's an advantage if you embrace if you embrace it. If you really are clear and understanding of the position you're in and that's the direction in your life and your career you want to take. Or if you're taking it not because you want to be a cook, because you need to be, you know, rounded knowledge wise in the industry uh, there's a lot of people i know that have this bachelor's degree from our university um the food service management and they don't really cook much anymore it's just the complete comprehensive understanding of the fundamentals of cooking that changed their direction in their career yeah absolutely if, listen if this is the thing you want to do this is great there are other avenues to be a really really good cook there's other avenues to be a great manager in the industry just you have to understand where being in culinary school provides i wouldn't say a competitive edge in the industry i would say it provides you a competitive edge to close the gap between your peers it's, you're always in competition it's just the way this world works so it's how are you going to find how are you going to put yourself in the best position to be the best version of yourself to reach the most of your potential as quickly as possible and i think culinary school johnson wales absolutely gave me that that key to that my own success um but it's not for everybody and i understand that Excellent advice. Um, so you got an associate's degree two years, and then you stayed on and got a bachelor's degree four years. Talk about that. Does some, could someone just survive with a two-year degree, in your opinion, and just go on? Or do they need four years? And if they do, why did you pick the four-year track that you did? Uh, I picked the four-year track because I promised my mom I'd get a four-year degree. <laughs> um, so you can't really lie to your mom like that. Um, it really will come back to haunt you. That's for sure. Um, I remember leaving my internship. I did my internship in Germany. 
at a five-star five-diamond resort called Sunnenelk on a small little town called Aftashvang, which is about two and a half hours. That's up. your two-year. Yeah, for my two-year. Um, and uh, did it in the middle of winter. I was like really living in the snow globe for a minute. It was gorgeous. Uh, but, you know, th- there was an offer on the table for me to potentially, after my just literally finish a, th- a three-month stint in a class and then come back and work at, at that property. And that's something I always kind of remember in the back of my mind that even our associate's degree gave me an opportunity to get right in the industry. It would have absolutely been an entry level position. Sous chef or chef de partie. It's not even a thought at that level. You're just a kumi and you're really just trying to learn everything. Um, I, I thought about it, but I came back from my bachelor's cause I had some other aspirations and I had made promises and I wanted to really follow through and that, Doing that opened another door, which got me to be a two-year TA for the hospitality college. Uh, if I hadn't the state, wouldn't have been able to have that opportunity open for me. Um, so this, I, I think maybe you'll understand more than most chefs. It's just you really don't know what doors open around the corner. Um, and you can take a left, and that's a different door. You take a right, it's a different door. It's just finding your path and being comfortable with it. Yeah, sometimes you don't even know your path. It's right there in front of you, and you just got to go on it. And as you start on the journey, you go, wow, that was a good decision. <laughs> yeah. Great. So the four-year degree, you stayed on, but you didn't stay with nutrition or culinary. You kind of went into the hospitality side, uh, more uh, management, front of the house. Tell us about that as an option. If someone's listening and says, you know, I'm, I'm in culinary now, I'm cooking. You know, I love it, but I don't love it as a career. I'm thinking of something else in this industry. Maybe you could talk about those paths, those opportunities, those doors that open for you in that area. Yeah, I mean, this will be an interesting start. But something the Air Force taught me is the greatest spirit of communication is no common core of experience. So if you're a front of house manager and you really don't have a fundamental understanding of food, it's going to be really hard to communicate, not just with your front of house team or the guests, which is the most important, but to work with the back of house, to have a fluid, open dialogue. Um, you don't have to be the best cook in the kitchen. Hopefully you've already, you're already, that person's already on the payroll. But if you're interested in wine, you probably should have a, general understanding of wine pairings if that's the world you're going to go into and that even extends all the way to the the non-bev world you're not going to climb the ladder unless you have a couple things under your belt one you really got to be competent with food two you need to be very competent with beverage and and then if you come to the other side you just got to be aware of the overall business operations and i think that where johnson and wales really in the early 2000s you know that's a business school first before it was a culinary school that's Every time I talk about Johnson & Wales specifically, I say it is a business school first. They added culinary later. And it's that for me at the top end at the 4,000 level courses, that was the principle that I really saw ringing true is we understood not how to cut an onion, but how to make money on the whole onion. And that for me was a really, really impactful lesson. I mean, I, I use your example every day, costing a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> I, I, I remember that class. I, I really remember that class. I remember the people I was sitting next to and it, and I couldn't get the cost of peanut butter per ounce down right. And I didn't understand how to, you know, remove the two slices of bread and factor the loss of the bread that I was losing in the overall equation. So, you know, if you've got, for example, 24 slices of bread and you take two away, well, now you have to cover the cost of 24 slices of bread, and 22 slices. And it's just understanding all that arithmetic makes a difference. Um, and to get back to your question, if you don't want to cook for a living, but you're still finishing your associates, you want to go front of house, you've done the hard part. You've got the foundation of knowledge. Don't lose it. Don't stop learning. Don't stay, you know, don't get out of the trends or understand what's happening. But, you know, pursue your passion in the front of house. There's a lot of that. I, I think service needs to come back. We need to have a, a better understanding of just honest, genuine service. Um, and I think there's pockets of restaurants that do a great job and, you know, they're staples, but you know, it, it's just like cooking. It's, it should be a gesture and it should be the thing that you give naturally. I think the customer should pay for your education and experience, but that, that genuine giving to something, that's something that that's our gift. Uh, that, that shouldn't really, I don't charge anybody for that. Mm-hmm. I'm just paying my experience. Yeah. I hear what you're saying, but how is that being affected now with COVID and this pandemic because, you know, they're shutting down or they're doing more takeout only. So where does that service aspect, which has 
disappeared in some states and where do you see that coming back is is it going to be needed is it going to be needed more than it was is it going to be eliminated do you, do you have any thoughts on that i do i, I a couple thoughts first and foremost i think the word pivot probably hasn't been used enough which is a little bit of a joke in these days i, I think it's just it's swim or die right business-wise you can make smart business decisions and it's not easy and if you're just stuck in a in kind of that apprentice mode or just the traditional sense of you're just going to do this like it's a craft like you're a tradesman in a journey i think the education we have the the foundation allows me to make better understanding i can make better choices because i'm more informed and an informed decision is always going to be better it's really hard hitting a moving target i think service is going to come back this is an unfortunate situation we're all in. It's definitely worldwide, and I think it's long-lasting for now, but we're going to be eating in restaurants in a year. We're going to be eating in restaurants in nine months, hopefully six months. So the doom and gloom is over. It's, it's kind of restaurants survive, and service, I think, is hopefully going to be the hallmark because that's where, you know, the restaurant idea is to restore the customer better than we found them. We need to nurture our customers. We need to completely provide you with nourishment. And I think there's some of that. And to the extent of like fine dining is never going to die. It'll just get smaller. Like the world's top two or 3% makes, they make a lot of money. They made a lot of money this past nine months in this 12 years. They're going to, they're going to want to pay for somebody, you know, and that's like James Beards and up. Those restaurants will be smaller. Chicago had 21, I believe we had, sorry, I believe we had 21 stars in 2020, in 2020. We've lost, I believe four. So the fine dining world is getting smaller, but it's not going to go away. The Michelin Guide's not going to go away. The Bib's not going to go away. Zach, it's not going away. Like all of that's still going to be there. The guests are still going to want to be there. So yeah, dining is going to happen. And I think service is always the cornerstone to a great restaurant. You're going to always want the food and the beverage, but you'll come back because the service is so genuine, so hospitable. That's what everyone wants. You, you can get that at Denny's. You got a great server who cares that day, or you can get that at Lenny. Yeah, I always say that to my boys when we're out. I'm like, see, that's a good manager. This is good training because it's good service. Doesn't that make you feel good when you're in that, whatever it is, Chick-fil-A, for example? You know, they do something right, it seems, at least in the one around our area. You know, the people are happy they're trained. And you go to other ones, it's like, you know, they could care less that you're there. And if the food is, you know, irrelevant at that point, it really comes down to how they make you feel and that service and that, yeah, I'm happy to give you my money. I like coming here. <laughs> I think when I see that, I think I feel really good about that tells me a lot about the culture and the operational philosophy that they're living their life by day in and day out, service in, service out. Their their focus, their priorities and how they're interacting with the guest is really aligned, really spot on. They already know the product they're serving is gonna be consistent. They've already mm -hmm. they've done the work, right? But the intangible in every restaurant is the human element, that human interaction. And when you can get a great manager to communicate evenly, to be a constant guiding coach, uh, and that as a manager, that's you're a coach, right? You're gonna kind of wear that mom and dad hat and you're also gonna be the coach hat. And if you're ever outside of a coach mentality where you can always affect positive change, you're not being a great manager. And I think that's also something where you see a great restaurant, you feel good about the outcome because you know from the top down, this is a really good crew. Yeah. And that's always comforting. It's the thing that makes you want to come back. Yeah. So true. So true. Let me take you back to school. Uh, you had mentioned that you thought you were prepared or the school prepared you, at least for those first two years. And you had mentioned or alluded to something like, wish there was more support for those later years, three and four, or even after you left. Could you expand upon that a little bit and maybe share some ways that they could have helped a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. In an overarching conversation, it's just really hard to teach someone the industry in four years. It's also really hard to teach someone how to start a business in four years. I think there could have been some courses that were primers, some general business courses, how to get a tax ID, how to work for loans, where you start looking for any of that money. I mean, there's an idea that's one that's a great idea. Everyone's got this dream restaurant if you're a cook for the most part. But the idea that a dream is a dream. You need to find a way to finance that thing. That thing is to get off the ground. Um, those gaps are hard. And I found out of the industry a lot of owners don't really talk about how they started. It's kind of a taboo subject about how did you open a restaurant? Where did you get the money from? Where are your partners? Um, 
those those are the things that I find challenging even today to have open dialogue with anybody really about that side of the business. There's a few people um, who are willing to have that dialogue, but I think Johnson & Wales essentially, specifically my specific campus and my university, gave me a fighting chance to really be a really smart entry-level cook <laughs> um, because there's just so much you don't know. It, it's like the first day of learning about wine. You're like, oh, it's like two grapes. It's just like a red and a white grape. And they're like, well, that's really funny to say that because there's like thousands of reds and there's a bunch that are crossbred in different names. And that we're not even talking about Italy. Italy is a whole thing. Uh, we're just going to talk about Cab and Pinot. Like, oh, what is going on? And I think kind of, you know, paralysis by analysis sometimes when you get overwhelmed with how much you need to learn. And what the structure of culinary school provides is that you can take meaningful chunks of that information and create a foundation that's really successful and then keep putting building blocks. You know, your experiences should be the building blocks. That education isn't like the hard slab of the house that I'm trying to build a foundation on. Yeah, it's a lot like boot camp. They're just getting you in there to figure out how you can hold the rifle. But then you go out to war, it's a totally different thing. And they're just trying to set the, the foundation. They can't teach you about how to get a loan or write a business plan where they got to first teach you like knife cuts and how to do a tournay or something that you may need, you know, chopping parsley. Right. So they start there and you, like you said, you just don't have enough time and you have to kind of pick and choose. And I guess, I guess that's where like an MBA or something may come in, but what courses would you have liked to have seen that were not offered that now being out there reflecting back, you're like, you know, that would have been a great course to have. I think I would have liked to seen at the time, I guess our capstone, I just actually missed the capstone at our university. I, I would say at the 4,000 level course, I think there could have been an elective and probably harder to staff, I think, from the logistical side of the university. But I do wish there was like an intro to business 101 of the industry where you actually do talk about tax ideas and you talk about writing a business plan. Like no one, you know, we had this idea that, you know, right, put your dream restaurant together and dining, but there's like, you need to be able to hand me a business plan and then go to a someone who's going to hand you money like that, just that understanding the language is important. Those are the things I find take time. I'm currently right now researching how to do a HACCP plan from start to finish. Uh, and that's an undertaking. And I remember learning about HACCP in school and it's still like, uh, I don't expect Johnson, never expect Johnson and Wales to really run me through. A, We're going to create a whole HACCP plan for this thing. Like it, that you need experience and you need a lot of knowledge to get there. They do teach that class. Now I just finished it. Yeah, we have advanced food safety, HACCP, and special processes. So it's like, you know, food safety. And, and the project in there is to write an actual HACCP plan and take it all the way through, you know, even your prerequisites, you know, going through those before you even start the plan and building the team. So we do it. It's a tough class. It's actually required in the culinary bachelor's, but it's a tough class because as you know, as you're going through it now, it's dry and there's a lot of laws and a lot of rules. <laughs> I read the uh, Chicago Food Code Yesterday, I read 58 pages line by line, sentence for sentence. Uh, it, you, you've got to want to read that. Like You've got to want to yeah. be looking for that information. And then, you know, it, it, it took me years to get to a point where I was like, all right, everything they're saying actually has a place in my memory bank. Like, I can say, I understand what this line means, why they're wording it this way from the health world. And it makes sense in my operational tempo. Um but it took me time, years to get to that point where I could understand that. And uh, Johnson Wells did a great job. Really, I think the most important part is documentation, 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 being very rigid and disciplined in temperature logs, being disciplined and just keeping everything organized. So that, that, that structure, that, again, that foundation is already set for me. Now I'm going to go back and keep putting building blocks. Uh, and it's... Uh, that's something, and I'm glad you guys are doing it. That's huge. That gives someone a mental nugget to keep in their head that down the road probably will produce some sort of fruit form. If you're a young cook out of school, you're probably not going to be writing HACCP plans for your first year. If you're going to a place where ROP is there, I think that's where it's a real advantage because you can have that conversation. You do understand the nitty gritty of the process of those control points and why it's really, really, really important. It's a privilege to be able to have a HACCP plan in your restaurant. It's pretty much, in my opinion, it's a crown jewel. It's the epitome of your understanding of health and safety and your true responsibility to the customer. And you've thought about everything to make sure that they're safe and that your vision for food can be executed at a very high level. Um, yeah, 
I, I think it's great. Yeah, we we teach the uh, ROP re- reduced oxygen packaging, the fermentation, the acidification. You know, if they want to make yogurt, if they want to make sausages. So we go through all that. I don't know if it should be a required class, though. I mean, I think. Like you were saying, there's missing an entrepreneurship class. Maybe there should be an elective for those that think, well, I guess you won't know if you're going to go into HACCP down the road, but those that want to could take the class, but be in requirement, some paths that the students may take, they may not need that. But again, that's for the culinary bachelor's degree program. Yeah, it's, that that's, does seem very specific, um, a little bit of a narrow window. Listen, if you're going to go through it, you will be better off for it. But I think there's, again, something that could have been more broad-based understanding that could have helped in the longer run. Um, I'd rather learn how to, I, I would have liked to have learned, you know, basically how to write a business plan before I could write asset plan. Mm-hmm. Um, then I can know my dream to open a little sandwich shop is going to be more reasonable before I'm like, well, now I want to do my curing, dry aging, all that. Yeah, I think more electives would be good. Uh, we currently add, I teach two other ones that have, I think, have been added since you've left. One is introduction to culinary instruction. It's an elective for those that may want to go into teaching. Great. And the other one is food media presentation skills for the culinary student, for those that want to learn how to, you know, do a blog, do a podcast, do a YouTube channel, you know, be able to present, whether it's for TV. So we have that as an elective too, that people may want to go into that route. So I think more electives it allows people to kind of pick their own unique customized path is uh, would be the best. That's huge. Yeah, th- those are great, great options. Uh, and I think it's very poignant to the market because uh, those are things you need to know. Being a chef 30 years ago is not being a chef now. Being a chef 40 years ago isn't even the same thing. And I think if you look at the top chefs in the world right now, what they have to be good at isn't really fair. And that's why it's probably really hard to hit that level is you got to be really, really, really smart in the business. You have to be absolutely the best cook in the kitchen amongst the best cooks in the kitchen. And you have to have a great vision and creativity. And then you got to be somewhat of a decent leader and a manager. All of those things is not essentially what the original role of being a cook was or being a chef. It's, it's, it's evolved so much more. If, if someone can do those things, your potential is limitless. There isn't anything in this industry you can't do if you're good at all of those founding pillars of excellence. Uh, but it's okay also if you're not super marketing savvy. Like, I, listen, I've got an Instagram. It's, some, it's not for anybody but for me. And that's not really the best way to advertise my product. And that's okay. I know my deficiency in that world. I also understand that I spent more time focusing on how to make the money and the onion than I did how to post a picture on Instagram. So kind of some of those differences, I think, against the electives, you just kind of determine the kind of person you want to lead in the industry and be for yourself. Yeah. And then you just build a team, you know, whatever your weakness is, you just hire someone for that. Like you could hire a social media manager. You could hire someone that could take over those other parts that, you know, you may be deficient in to kind of make you whole in that area. And it's true what you say about school too, is they don't, I don't think a lot of people realize what a chef has to do or what the hats they have to wear and the roles they have to play. Mm -hmm. I can remember when I was going for my terminal degree or PhD or my MBA was in class and one was in, uh, I got my degree in education and I was in there with people that were maybe going to be principals and, you know, things like that, deans. And they were in the education world and they'd say, oh, you teach cooking, you're a chef. Oh, that's fun. Do you guys get to wear those hats? And what do you flip burgers? What do you learn? And I'm like, culinary school is a lot more than that. It's really a business degree plus a culinary degree plus a marketing. I mean, there's so many parts and components that go in to make that successful chef or food service entrepreneur that I, I don't think people realize it behind the scenes. No, it's, it's all-encompassing. It's really difficult. The, but the other thing I would say is just because you learned it in four years, just because you went through these classrooms, you're going to have to put 90% of that back on the shelf. Because if you're going to be in the industry as a cook, your number one job is to be the best cook you can possibly be. And I will definitely tell anybody, if you can be as good as Grant or Thomas Keller or Curtis Duffy, um, if you can do that in four years, that's great. Good for you. Uh, And you actually had a guest on who I thought was probably to this day still is the best cook I've seen in person, Luis Young. Listen, that kid had a different 
had everything different. He just was really, really, really good. It, I mean, it was an awe. And he's competing with the Giants and the Megalists in the industry, and he still has to get better. And he would say that, right? Because he's still pushing himself to reach a new height. And I think that's the other thing is he invested so, so much of his time and energy, as I have, as, as great chefs do, is you invest back into the fundamentals. I mean, once you leave, the only thing you should be asking is, what do I not know fundamentally? off the top of my head, can I make a perfect hollandaise a thousand times every day? Yeah. Uh, I make, I put Bernays on my menu for two reasons. One, it's delicious. And two, I now have something that if I bring a team member on, I can come back to a fundamental sauce and we can have a conversation about what that is and what are the, the principles and the aspects of what makes that work. So it's a teaching moment. So I've built already preemptively a teaching moment of just pure foundation already in the menu. Uh, and I think of it those ways because I just want to be technically sound on the base level. And the more I focused on that, the better any of those little gadget tricks have gotten me. Yeah. Those little <laughs> things in your sleeves, like I, those have become easier to execute because the basis is just really, really, it, it's secondhand. I, I got, it's easy. That's perfect. Yeah, Bernays is one of my favorites, and it's a good fundamental sauce. Talking about Luis Young, very talented, and he was a guest on the first season of the show. And listeners can go back and listen to that if they like. But he really went into the sacrifices. I mean, he had to make. I mean, sleeping on the floor, working the numerous hours. So if anyone's you know looking at that level. Think about the sacrifices you have to make. And it was interesting, too, that he spent some time in front of the house, like you were just mentioning earlier. You know, he says that really helped complete him, knowing both sides of that, the front and the back, and breaking down that wall between the two of them. Yeah, I, again, at the chef level, at the man, and I, and I guess I, I want to be specific, really specific here. When, I, when I'm referring to a chef, I'm referring to a manager or a leader of a team. Um, if, if you're not, in my opinion, if you're not leading a team of a sous chef responsibility, you really haven't earned it, It's a title, right? It's you have to go, you have to wear that responsibility. It's just because you can fly a plane doesn't mean you're the captain of the airplane. You're, you're the first officer, right? That one of those is a specific title. You're able to do a fundamental job, but one has a different responsibility. So when you're a chef, the thing you have to ask yourself is really two questions. One is, are you well-rounded? And second, how bad do you want it? And that sacrifice always comes back to the how bad do you want it are you willing to take pay cuts are you willing to work for less than you think your value is currently are you willing to work an extra shift are you willing to pick up an extra shift are you willing to work at a higher level kitchen at a lower level position or you've got to ask yourself how much are you willing to what are you willing to put in front as opposed to your your grandiose vision of being successful success is something that will come to you it will be a drawing force because you should be doing everything you can to build a rounded individual. You don't want to get hyper-specific. Um, and I think that's a, a key point young cooks need to understand sometimes is if you're going to do culinary school, great, do it. It's there to put a foundation, but you're entering a trade. It's one of the three oldest original jobs that we can understand in the trades like this, basically bricklaying, cooking, and another job. Um, and we all normally, we know the third one is, <laughs> but to that point, it's, that, that mindset, I've always found that person excels, putting the effort in. Um, and I've been out of school for almost 10 years now, a little less than that. And it's, I've just now gotten to the point where my experience is starting to match my education, right? So if you've got a four-year degree and you've got 10 years in the industry, I kind of find that like the perfect sweet spot. Because you've seen enough, you've gone through enough things, you can have an honest conversation about what's happening. It's experience is always the king. Like education is the thing I felt in my world that when I get to the upper levels, when I get to that chef or sous chef, that's when my mind or my education works better in communication because I have something to draw on. You know, I, you're drawing from that academic world as much as you're drawing from your experience. So it's, it's principle and practice and you're able to really collide them together and be a really good force. Mm -hmm. But you got to sacrifice that. You know, I, I put basically, I say it all the time, like I pretty much put my degree on a shelf. I don't hang my degree anywhere. I don't do any of that because I'd rather have my work and my experience be the token. When we talk about the degree, I'll tell you what's great about it. But I want my experience to be the first thing that leads me to the room. 
the degree should be the, oh, now we can have a real dialogue about food costs. We can have a real dialogue about menu engineering. We can have a real dialogue about building a team. All of those things. That's where that, I feel, mm-hmm. makes a bigger difference. Yeah, that's true. And I've had other guests that say it takes about 10 years, you know, to be that chef, sous chef, you know, to get into that management role. And I agree, you know, because it's almost like medical school. You know, you got to go in and do your... You know, you do your learning, that's the school part, but then you got to go out and do your residency. You got to go out and practice and do different roles and, and apply those those learning and, and get more experience. And then after a certain amount, then you can be like a doctor and open up your own practice. And now you're ready to lead and use that combination of experience and education. Excellent. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned sacrifice and um, it, Luis Young, when I had him on, he mentioned sacrifice too, obviously had a, quite a bit. And he also brought up an interesting point. He talked about questioning himself, that he had along that way, those 10 years, he had self-doubts, whether that was the right path or did he make the right decisions. I'm wondering, did you find that as well through your 10 years after school? Every day. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> um, yeah, you, there should, your dream should be so big and your belief in yourself should be so big that it scares you just a little bit. Because that fear is going to keep you aware and hopefully you can channel that energy, at least I do, of saying, okay, I really want this. What is the actual best move? What is the thing I need to do to be that version of myself? I don't want to pretend to be a chef. I don't want to play. This is a life and there are standards that the industry has and fellow chefs have. I have to gain respect for these people, for my colleagues. You're my colleague. Every instructor now I've ever worked with is now a colleague because we're in the same huge, huge fraternity that spans races and genders. It's a beautiful, beautiful world, but it's a respect-based world and you got to put the effort in. And you really need to understand, like, do I belong here? The answer is, yeah, you you do. There's always a place for someone in this industry. That's what I love about this. There is a place for everybody. It really welcomes everybody. It's also really, really hard, <laughs> really, really hard. In those sacrifices, you, you, you're never going to go somewhere if you don't take a risk. And a risk means you're going to normally have a chance of failure, which there should be a little bit of apprehension there. But the potential, and if you go back to leaning into that, that trading mentality, that's where your head is at, you're going to be fine because there is also this kind of understanding of what that means. And you can go through some of those trials and tribulations. Very good. Awesome. So I'd like to take you back and speak to your background regarding the military and, you know, being a cadet and a cadet captain and, you know, tell us a little bit about that and how that had an effect on you and, or if it did making you the person you are today and even go before going into culinary school or into this career, did it have an impact or an impression on you? Yeah, it's a, it's a lifelong impact. There's life lessons there I've never forgotten. I mean, I start at the top of the quote. With communication is the greatest, the greatest period of communication is no common core of experience. Uh, and that was drilled to me when I was 16. Uh, you know, my, my story starts at 15 in sixth grade, middle school for me. Um, and my friend that I had met at the time was in this program called the Air Force Auxiliary. Uh, and it was started in 1941. Uh, essentially, it was a group of civilians who would fly these airplanes uh, to defend the coast. And actually, it was the Atlantic coast for uh, looking for U-boats. And it's really, really developed into something completely different. Uh, that core branch is aerospace education, cadet program, and emergency services. So essentially, what CAP is, is a volunteer service of complete civilians who really conform themselves to military regulations. So we follow Air Force protocol. Uh, Air Force regulations, and I had done that as a cadet and a senior member for nine years. Uh, I'd reached the grade of cadet captain. I was a cadet commander of a squadron of about 40 people, uh, and that was by 17. Uh, so a lot of this leadership principles were something that were really big for me. So I knew I could be a leader of, of men and women. I could lead. Uh, I knew I had discipline to excel. Um, ROTC was a great wake-up call. Uh, I, I say it to this day, the most competitive environment I have ever been in my life. Everyone is smarter, faster across the board. Um, everyone is super, super competitive, not just with each other, but specifically competitive with themselves. And you have to be the kind of be that A-type personality. Um, and 
when I decided to change the cooking as a passion, I still kind of had that fire. I had that, like, you need to be the best. It's all about, you know, extreme ownership, internal you know, motivation. You, you're really going to lead yourself. You're really the only one who's going to get you across the finish line. Uh, self-reliance was really big. And I think when I got into culinary school and I realized the deficit was so big, it was like, you need to own where you are at and you need to find a way to get, you need to catch up as fast as possible. I was getting cooked around circles. I could not keep up with anybody. It wasn't really till the back end of my second year or, or when Germany, when I came back from Germany and then that's kind of when I got a little, you know, <laughs> air under my wings a little bit, but that structure, that experience, what it taught me right away is respect for the authority, respect for the chain of command, something I'm very, very big on. If I'm working with a GM and the structure is the GM's over me, I will support that person's role 100%. I will make sure the flow of communication is through that person because that person can't be blindsided and I need to know what my role is. If I'm the tip of the spirit restaurant, which I have been at one point in time, you have to understand how that also works and what your role is to the other leaders, the ownership, as well as your team members, the followers, and the responsibility there is for that. Um, it's a lesson I already had that I felt confident when the time came or if there was an opportunity to be a chef that I, I could lead uh, at that level. Um, and there's always going to be growing pains. Listen, if the leader's not making a mistake, he ain't trying, right? He ain't cheating, he ain't trying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, kind of the same verbiage in the kitchen. If he ain't sandbagging a little bit during this busy service, are you actually, if, are you really properly preparing or anticipating the demand? Mm -hmm. um, and I know there's a debate about that, but, Ultimately, the guests, the guests don't care. The guest, the moment the guest sits down, I know this is a bit of a tangent, but the moment the guest sits down, that's when the clock in their head starts. And they're only worried about their table. They're not worried about anyone else's. Um, so that kind of also helped, has always helped me a little bit in, in the industry. But my experience in the military, to any extent, just allowed me to understand what my role is and where my place is. And to be able to have that sort of internal dialogue about ownership and responsibility. And I think that for me, I felt like it was an advantage over some people. Uh, just a little bit of maturation. You know, Johnson Wales takes people from all demographics, age brackets. Now, we were working with people who were ex-rocket scientists from NASA. I remember one of those kids that running around campus and kids right out of high school from South America, from the Dominican Republic. I mean, it, it couldn't have been more diverse if we had tried to put a different movie set in there. It was crazy how great it was. Yeah. But again, the overall experience that I had walking into there says, I need to stay focused. I need to not get distracted and I need to be aware of what's in front of me and what my role is. And I use those lessons every day in my kitchen. Yeah, as a chef instructor, I noticed that the the students that had a military background, you know, seemed to assimilate a little bit quicker because, you know, culinary is very similar to the military in many ways, structure-wise, you know, Scoffier and the brigade system and the hierarchy, you know, that we used to do the lineups in the morning and they pressed uniforms and the cleanliness and sanitation. I think that all kind of bodes well for those that come out of the military in many ways. Yeah, I, I loved ironing my uniforms. <laughs> it was something I took great pride in. I made sure I had the best creases. Uh, I, I knew the tricks. Um, I knew how to keep everything really clean. Uh, Polish the shoes. <laughs> I did. I know how to have everything dialed in. Um, I've allowed myself to relax a little bit, you know, allow the, the priority to be something more important than just visual appearance. Um, but I always have a clean jacket in my kitchen in case I need to go to the front or talk to a rep. Um, and I believe in those kind of basic principles as well. Okay. So now looking back, was culinary school worth it? What's the return on investment? And there's a lot of time, there's a lot of money that you spent. There's a lot of, you know, sacrifices that you had to make. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the university I attended was just a little over $120,000 for four years. Wow. So if I'm paying basically, maybe it's 34, 35,000 a year. So it's probably closer to 140. Um, you know, my first sous chef job, my, my first job out of culinary school was a chef at basically a supper club in Wisconsin. I made $15 an hour and I fought really hard to get that. My second job I was making about that same. And then my first real sous chef job, I remember getting my offer letter and I was making $30,000 my first time as a sous chef. And they, they were working me, really working me. Um, and that goes back to the sacrifice. How bad do you want it? Are you willing to truly understand that as much as you might have a four-year degree, it's about the experience. You got to go out there and you got to earn it. Um, 
I make a little more than that these days, um, but it's taken 10 years to, you know, have that base salary requirement. And I think some of those risk rewards is something you also have to understand. You can, I, I work with a banquet chef in Lowe's Chicago, which is where I was before this for a major hotel, four and a half stars. Great. Love the company. Uh, and the banquet chef had never gone to culinary school. And we talked about that all, all the time about, you know, he's got no, none of this debt over his head. Uh, and I do. And you know, how do I manage it as opposed to him? And it's just understanding that you can not do this and end up at the same place where I think the, the opportunity to improve is, is I think what I have an advantage of is when we start talking nuts and bolts about food costing and doing any of the back end stuff, that's where I find I excel because it's really, really, really easy to understand because we've had those serious foundation, foundational understandings. So if you go do the apprenticeship, you know, start off at TJ Fridays, for example, there's a, there's a ton of lessons to be learned there. Then you go to a little cafe or mom and pop shop. And then you, you know, maybe find a James Beard chef. You really want to start learning your skills for you know, you get 10, 15 years down the road, you're an established sous chef, maybe a chef de cuisine. You've learned the hard way. You know, there's, there's a lot of those lessons. You know, if you read Bourdain's book, I'm rereading it currently. He got his butt kicked up north, P-Town. And then he decided to go to CIA because he got embarrassed being a boiler cook. <laughs> <laughs> like, Mel Car- Alcarne, right? Yeah. They were making fun of him. And he came back with a vengeance. The culinary school just gave him a a foundation to stand on, but even Bourdain had to keep pushing himself in the industry because no one really cares. Like that's the joke is like, well, the kid went to culinary school. No one cares. Well, actually employers care. Other cooks don't care um, because it's either you can cook or you can't cook uh, or you are going to be a great manager or not. It's when you get to the point where you're going to start using that degree, menu engineering, food costs, developing HACCP plans, um, all of those things really do matter. Uh, and you have to determine whether you're willing to, are you going to pay for it through your time or are you going to pay through it through your pocket? Uh, and you can do both and you should do both a little bit. I think um, maybe you'd take an online course. It could be from the Harvard school. It can be from Johnson and Wales. All these things make a difference, but it listen for a university, for a degree, it's expensive. Absolutely. There's a real cost attached to that. And you need to ask yourself if you're willing to live that life, if you're willing to accept the responsibility of all of that, it's something to consider, right? It's not just about learning. It's about a full picture of your life the moment you graduate. So, yeah, you don't, you don't go to culinary school to be a line cook, right? I mean, it's not a hobby. It's a career and you're, it's a big, big investment. And if you want to get the return on that investment, all that money spent, you know, you need to have a long-term plan and be successful. So how would you recommend people pay for it? I mean, did you get, is there loans? Is there, you know, uh, programs? Is there employer sponsors? I mean, how, how can you defer some of those costs? Yeah, that's a great question. You got to find a way to diversify yourself. You need, I mean, I, I know people who worked every day while they were in school, full-time job, full-time school. Couldn't believe it. Some people use a GI Bill, great advantage for that. Some people were financed individually and could afford that. Me, I was in a position where uh, I had saved a little bit of money from working. I was able to put down a couple thousand dollars to start. And then I needed FASA grants. I needed Pell grants. Um, And they came to the point where I had to to go try to be an RA because I needed to find a way to cut the cost. And then after I was an RA for a year, I needed to find, I was really trying to be a TA because I wanted the scholarship. I wanted the opportunity, but I wanted the money. Uh, because I needed to find a way to survive because I wanted it that bad. Uh, I also wanted to learn and be a part of, you know, the educational team from that aspect. I was really, really intrigued in the leading learning cycle that I had to immediately adapt. But my path to getting out of school was basically three years of some sort of service to the university uh, in a supporting role. And I, I wouldn't have been able to get to the other side if I hadn't been a TA. I was probably, I was really thinking about not coming back because I couldn't afford it. You know, my family wasn't really able to support me as much as they wanted to. And I think that's most families. Everyone's in that boat for a lot of the cases. Uh, you got to decide if you want it. I mean, yeah, you can be, you know, like go cook, work for a hotel and say, hey, I'm interested in going to Connor school. You guys want to start paying for some of that? Well, we'll maybe pay 30, 40% and I'll pay the rest. You know, there's, there are those options out there. You got to look at all of them, apply to grants, apply to scholarships, you know, 
do whatever it takes if you're serious about it, because if you're spending that much money um, and I've seen it, I've seen people who have these degrees and they just don't use them anymore. I feel bad for them. Uh, if they have to pay it off, you're paying off, you're paying for something that you're, you weren't in love with. That hurts a little bit. Um, if they can handle that, that's great, but that's their decision for me. I needed a, I love what I'm doing. It doesn't mean I love every day. It doesn't mean every day is easy. It means I'm just, putting the effort in because I'm aware of how much it costs and you got to give it a go. You got to compete. Those are some good tips on how to maybe defer some of those costs. But for the listeners, maybe you could explain what is an RA and what is a TA and how that can help, you know, foot some of that bill or reduce that cost. Yeah, I I was a resident assistant. uh, So basically just kind of a student you kind of made sure the, the dorms were well kept after and everyone was kind of following the rules. You know, entry-level leadership. Uh, and I think there's all facets there. You're not babysitting, you're leading, uh, and you're supporting the role of the university. And for a TA, more specifically, I was in charge of courses uh, and sometimes courses I hadn't particularly finished. And the way I went about that is... And that's, and that's teaching assistant. That's teaching assistant. I, I actually developed my schedule upside down uh, so when I was a TA, I took as many 4,000 level courses as I could first. So I did like my first, my first beverage concentration course was analogy. I skipped everything. I went right to analogy with Peridot and everyone in that classroom wanted to be a psalm. And that's the hardest course I've ever taken at Johnson Wales because uh, everyone was really smart and there was no letting up. It's like, here's France. It's 170 pages. We're going to read it this week and we're going to talk about France in 45 minutes you need to figure everything else out. You're like, Oh man. Wow. Uh, but I, I was doing that because I needed to also provide some sort of base understanding for the students I was participating in. I might not be teaching wine, but I need to understand some base varietals or how to set up a tasting, which I've had to do multiple tastings. You know, you, as a TA, I'm also looking, watching students cook in a kitchen. So I was responsible for the condition and the outcome of that kitchen. Um, at a secondary level, the instructor is the, the primary, but my job is to make sure that the instructor, if need not be there, can leave and do something uh, because there needs to be supervision. So that role was really important for me to feel confident, at least for me, that um, I can learn something new and then immediately regurgitate it as well that matches the same lesson, right? And I think as a TA, your job is to support and supplement the educational role. Um what you learn is how to be a really good follower while being a really good leader at the same time. Okay. So now have, have you achieved your goals since leaving Johnson and Wales, since leaving campus, you know, where's your goals? Where do you see yourself going? Uh, where, where do you think you're at now? One of my goals is to be a chef in Chicago, be, be an actual CDC or head chef in Chicago. I, I very recently have had the opportunity, even in this unfortunate situation to, to find a new home, to be able to do that. Uh, So I think I've really achieved one of my dreams, uh, and it's been 10 years. Uh, I've taken a lot of risks to get here, and some were really risky, and some were not so much. Um, And I would say, yeah, I have. But the journey couldn't have imagined that the track I have taken to get here would be the actual track I've taken. Uh, And there's just something about that. I find a little whimsical. I I think it's fun. Uh, you got to kind of submit yourself to the path. Pat, the, the, the weight of the industry will kind of move you like a big wave and you just got to kind of go with it a little bit. Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, Johnson Wills has helped me. Culinary school has helped me. I needed that. I had no really cooking experience. I felt like I had a sharp mind and aptitude and potential and they gave me the foundation. It worked for me um, and it allowed me to reach a different dream. I didn't know I had, you know, until I was in my late teens. And uh, I, it's not about achieving. It's one thing. I want to keep it. Now I can't go backwards. Now I got to redouble down my efforts somehow to, to achieve new heights or to help not just build myself up, but it's about building this concept that I'm currently working with. Uh, and I'm with this great team and making that as good as it can be. And now I get to compete in a tier one market. I compete with chefs in Chicago, chefs in New York, chefs in Austin and LA and San Francisco. It, it's in Miami, it's we're you're, I'm now in this number fraternity, right? It's like being in the O Club as an officer. Is now it's a different level, and it's also a different level of responsibility, and it's about engaging at that level. And something I didn't think I would really get to as quickly. There was always a hope, um, you know, a little ambitious, 
maybe a little too grandiose, uh, but that's what dreams are for. And if you can find a way to make incremental, meaningful steps that help reestablish a foundation, you're going to do just fine doing that. And I think that's where I ended up doing. And I'm really proud of myself and excited to be here, but I'm excited to be able to finally do more, give back to my industry in a way that I wasn't able to, to, to use a platform and use a voice to allow others to be highlighted. Good for you. That's great. Do you want to give a shout out to where you are now, what you're doing, in case somebody wanted to look you up? Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, working with Hops and Curds in Lincoln Park, Illinois. Uh, we're very excited. We're kind of more of a modern gastropub idea. We, we really take pretty much Midwest comfort food and we just elevate it a little bit. Uh, we find ways to be a little unique, unique and a little counterculture because we don't take ourselves too seriously. Uh, the effort we put in is the serious part. The thought we put in is the serious part. Our honest, genuine approach is the serious part, but we take some things with a little uh, little playfulness, right? You, you got to have a little youth in the cooking. That's what makes it fun a little bit. Um, you know, a little bit of that grandma touches I always like to talk about. <laughs> um, so uh, great. It's Listen, they're a great team there. I, I couldn't be more happy. Our potential is literally limitless. Um, and I'm first and foremost, just really fortunate to be a part of that. Because I also understand it's about 17 to 20% of restaurants are not open anymore. It's almost half a million people who are out of work in the industry, if not more. Um, that cannot get a job back because their restaurant does not exist. So that's as much as I feel, you know, humbled and success. It's also a realization that we've got to use this platform to help our other peers, our other brothers and sisters out there. That's great. And is there a website there that someone could look it up if they wanted to check out the place or the menu or something? Absolutely. Hopsandcurds.com. Uh, just like you understand, it's like the hops, like the, the beer and the curds, like cheese curds. Um, that's uh, pretty straightforward for us. And uh, my Instagram handle, if anyone's interested, is a Rubenic, R-U-B-E-N-I-C, on Instagram. And you can also follow us at Hops and Curds on Instagram as well. Awesome. I will definitely put those in the show notes too. So if someone's listening and driving and can't write that down, you can go back and find that and look those links up. Excellent. Well, Alex, as we come to the end of our talk today, and you know, before I wrap this up, is there any last minute guidance or any advice that you want to leave with the listeners, something you want to share? Yeah, I think, you know, something that's always kind of resonated with me is trying to find a, a mentorship or some level of, you know, camaraderie that you can always communicate to. This is a really tough road, front of house, back of house. You need someone to kind of be a sounding wall to help provide you with some different insight, different perspective. It's whether it's a chef instructor, whether it's a fellow wine cook or a chef or a sous chef or an owner, um, ask questions, ask all of the questions, be relentless in your pursuit of your own dream and the pursuit of being the best version of yourself as you can be, not just for the industry, but specifically for you to do that. And you could do that day one of culinary school. And you can do that if you're 20 years out. Uh, it's the same idea. You're just committed to your own growth and your own success. And listen, if, if you're bettering yourself every day, what's really happening is you're making the team better. Uh, and it's about that teamwork. And that's the most, that's one of the most important parts to keep in mind is that you're, you're a part of something much bigger, really, in reality. So uh, find that mentor, find that partner, find someone you can talk to, keep that dialogue open, keep it constant. Uh, ask questions, be fearless. Well said. And that is something I hear with all the guests on here. They're always talking about mentorship and, and offering themselves because I think that's the hospitality in all of us that, you know, if they can ever help. And I always tell my students too that if, you know, if I can ever be a resource for them anywhere in their career along their journey, I'm always here. And I, I think that's so true for everybody in this industry. We're always willing to help and give advice and you know, give whatever we can. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I currently mentor a, a fellow J. Wu alum from our campus right now. I've been in contact with this individual for three years, and it's uh, something we work on every week. We have the same day we meet. We talk about this individual's goals and how we can achieve those together. Um, and, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll extend, extend it to really anyone listening here. If they're, if they're a young cook and you got questions, do not hesitate to get in contact. Um, the more questions you ask to anybody is the better. This, you hit it on the head. It's, it's our hospitality. That needs to be uh, uh, the vibrating light in the inside, the thing that you do care about. That's that's the gift, right? You, you can't teach someone to care. Either they do or they don't. Um, and I think that's uh, that's what makes us unique. As, as much as we have hard days and bad clopins, you always come back saying, oh, I could make someone's day today, though. That's pretty special. <laughs> 
That's true. And I'll, and I'll jump, I'll piggyback onto that. If anyone is listening and needs advice or wants a follow-up, reach out to any of the guests that have been on this show. Every one of them, um, you go in their show notes, there's their bios, there's their social media contacts, reach out to them or anybody, myself or anyone at a school or any restaurant. If you talk to uh, a chef or a manager in this business, I know they would help you in the long run. Write them an email. You know, I'm sure they'll answer you. Absolutely. Well, that is just about all the time we have for this episode. I want to first thank you, Alex, for coming on the show today and sharing your culinary school story with all of us. We really appreciate your time, your insight, and your honesty. Thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoy this. This is the stuff that gets me excited every day to be able to share and talk about our industry. It's just it's really a blessing. So thank you so much, Chef. Oh, you're welcome. It was great catching up. Thanks again. I enjoyed our chat. Bye-bye now. Have a good one. And a big thanks and appreciation also goes out to all of you, the listeners. We hope you enjoy the show and this episode. You all are a big part of this show, so please let us know what you think. Your comments are always welcome, and they help us in making the best show possible. You can email them to culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. That's culinaryschoolstories at gmail.com. Or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. That's area code 207-835-1275. And if you like the show, we have a big ask of all of you. And that is to share the podcast with everyone you know. And to give us a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, until our next culinary school story, take care and be well. Bye-bye. Culinary School Stories is a proud member of the Food Media Network.